0: Welcome to the podcast Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today we bring a bonus episode to you from one of my favorite books over the past few years. It's from a Biola professor named Greg Gansel, and the book is called Our Deepest Desires. Now, if you've been listening to Think Biblically Podcast for some time, you probably recognize this title because we interviewed Professor Gansel a couple of years ago. But this interview is actually from my YouTube channel, which is in partnership with with the Talbot Apologetics program, and we got to go in a lot more depth and kind of update where he's at with his thinking on this topic. And his basic argument is that we have deep desires for things like freedom, truth, beauty, and we have these human longings for relationships that are uniquely fulfilled in the Christian faith. I love this idea, and it's one of the books that was really game-changing for me. So I think you're really going to enjoy this podcast. Uh, So again, enjoy this bonus episode with Greg Gansel, and if you do enjoy it, we hope you'll consider sharing it with a friend. Hey friends, we are glad that you are joining us. I am here with a colleague, with a friend of mine. His name is Greg Gansel, and he's written one of the books that I would consider one of the most game-changing evangelism and apologetics books that I've read in some time. It's called Our Deepest Desires. Uh, just so you know, I'm not blowing smoke. I teach full time at Biola. Greg teaches alongside of uh, me there. I teach alongside you. I guess you, you could say you're more veteran teacher than I am. But I'm oh. teaching a high school class also on Bible and we'll be using your book. And my son is in that class. So I picked the books I thought could really help my son. And this is one of them. So I love oh. it. Super glad. Thanks for coming on the show, Greg. Been looking forward sure. to it.
1: Great to be here. Thanks so much, Sean.
0: Well, we're going to probe and get into this. But uh, first, those of you listening, make sure you hit the subscribe button because we have some other interviews coming up on uh, the Old Testament. Is the Old Testament God a genocidal bully? Uh, good chance William Dembski is going to come on and give us a kind of preview or a review of the intelligent design movement looking back. So make sure you hit subscribe. You will not want to miss some of the interviews we have coming up. Uh so in this in this show, if you want to throw your questions in there, we will be going to those throughout, uh probably pushing some of them towards the back, because we're gonna jump in and talk about uh your book. And the title is Our Deepest Desires. For starters, tell me what you're getting at with that title by calling it Our Deepest Desires.
1: Well, um, I think that I think everybody carries roughly two sets of desires, right? We have surface desires, Okay. right? What do you want? Well, I want to sit on my back patio with a book and a cup of coffee, chat with my wife. Um, and and it, it's not that these are bad desires, but they can be considered kind of vacation desires. Okay. Right? Okay. This is kind of a leisurely fun life. Um, but we also have deeper desires that have to do more with um, what kind of people we want to be, What is it that we long for in life? So I'm trying to get a little bit um, at the deeper level of our desires.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Now, on page 11, you say this. You say the story that Christianity sets forth fits well with the things we value most and the kinds of people we want to be. Tell me what you mean by that and how it is that our desires are somehow pointing us towards this Christian story.
1: Well, it, it's interesting because if we uncover our deeper desires and we come up with some kind of a list, and of course in the book I, I discuss four major arenas yeah. kind of desires, um, we can go on to ask the question, what worldview makes the most room for these things? In what worldview are they more real or or a deeper part of um, – Reality, the fabric of everything that is. Okay. And in what world are they more shallow or kind of
0: superfluous? So you're moving from something true about the way humans see the world, experience the world, to ask what worldview best accounts for this phenomena that we have. Is that a fair way to put it? That's exactly right. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Then what about those who pretty much, the moment we're starting this conversation, would say, okay, wait a minute, you're saying our desires point towards Christianity. Their Mm -hmm. perception is that Christianity is bigoted, narrow-minded, exclusive, Mm -hmm. fill-in-the-blank. What about that perception and experience of Christianity? Well,
1: I think we have to take that very seriously because a lot of people uh, have experienced um, Christians or people they think are Christians who respond that way. And of course, nobody wants to be like that. And so it, 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 I have a lot of sympathy with someone who thinks there's a disconnect between these desires. And this is why I try to focus not on how Christians inhabit the world, but what the story of Christianity itself is. Okay. And and that's how I try to make this uh, distinction.
0: And by the way, this doesn't come out of you just sitting, reading books, pondering like a philosopher. You were at Yale for a number of years. You've worked with Crewe. This comes out of your work with students, doesn't it?
1: Well, exactly. Uh, students and faculty, right? So mm-hmm. un, until five years ago, I I worked entirely in secular universities in the Ministry of Crew. When I was at Yale, I got to teach part-time for about 10 years, and I had a lot of friends who were faculty, um, not yet believers. And I actually wrote this book for them. I was thinking, yeah, what could we give um, an un, someone who's not really a believer in Jesus, someone who might be a faculty member, to maybe be a conversation starter. And, and that's kind of what I went after.
0: Now, if you're working with crew, I've never asked you this, but what's your, your testimony, so to speak? And I know that's a language that fits with crew, but what is your story coming to faith? Do these desires mm-hmm. and your thinking in this book shape it, or is this something you came up with after you had been in the faith?
1: Well, I hadn't thought about it for a long time, but it fits exactly in. In fact, okay. I tell the story in the, in, um, the goodness chapter. I, I was in high school and, and I, you know, we went to church as a kid and I hadn't rejected. It was, it was somewhat meaningful to me, but um, I'd gotten involved in a youth group. We started to read the Bible together and it began to seem more relevant. And one day out of the blue, I, I had this this dramatic sense that there was too much goodness in the world for it to be an accident.
0: Huh?
1: And I was thinking of friendships. I was thinking, I had just discovered the music of Bob Dylan. Okay, so this was okay. There
0: we go. 1973, we go. right?
1: Um, and I, I loved the music. And and I thought it it can't be an accident. God has to be real and involved with in us. But it was it was like a, a momentary flash. Now reflecting on it, I see that it it connects with our desire to find goodness, and that the world itself is a good place. Mm. And that made sense to me.
0: That's really that was interesting. Concerning. Because the number one objection I hear is the problem of evil and suffering. You looked at it in reverse. You don't downplay yeah. that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. You're saying these features of the world of human value and beauty and goodness are signs of some transcendent purpose of the universe we live in. Yeah. And you got that as a high school student. <laughs> That's pretty yeah, awesome. <laughs> it, it,
1: it was it was amazing to me. And 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 that was the beginning of the turning point. And I thought it, it's not just that God existed because I, I never really – was an atheist but it was that god was involved he cared wow, he was wow. he was imminent and and it was a couple of weeks after that at an event that i i made a, a commitment to christ to trust mm-hmm. him and um but that was the change
0: well, let's jump into some of the specifics i think uh the first time i heard you say this was at an apologetics meeting group at biola it was like the lights went on for me that's how i describe your book Greg, there's a lot of moments of like, oh my goodness, why didn't I think of that? And you're talking about an insight we have about what humans value that came clear at nine eleven. Tell us what you mean by that.
1: Well, it, it's really interesting. Of course, nine eleven is ancient history for a lot of people who are watching. That's true. One of the striking things, and that was a that was an incredibly traumatic day. Hmm. But in retrospect, nobody grieved for the buildings. Hmm. And and I've I've been up on the World Trade Center a number of times, and they were magnificent buildings, just just remarkable feats of engineering. And they were beautiful. Um, But at that moment, in a crisis, we mourn, we grieve for the people. And this this reveals that in our deepest desires that that they're they're almost all centered around um, human beings and human beings are at the center of our deeper desires. Other things come later. Yes.
0: And that's true with all tragedies, just 9-11, right? 9-11 just made it clear to Americans in particular. But all tragedies bring this out, don't they?
1: Exactly. Right. When a tornado hits, we don't ask how many Homes were destroyed until after we ask how many people were hurt. Okay, so it's, it's not that we don't care about homes, we I, do, but
0: people matter most. So it's about priorities and value. Yes. And I, I think I heard you tell the story, I don't recall reading it in the book, but correct me if I'm wrong, about um, his name is escaping me, uh, the man on the flight who called his family when they were going to hijack the plane. And he, yes. what does he do? He has a moment to call. And he Mm -hmm. calls his wife and kids to say, I love you. Now let's roll. It's like, how does that Somebody
1: made the comment, and I do refer to this. Somebody made the comment that nobody called the office to check on work. Hmm. Even though work is valuable to us. We call the people we loved. Hmm. And and so there's a, I mean, I remember a 9-11, I called my parents. And of Hmm. course we were no, I was in Connecticut. They were in Maryland. And, and, but we just felt like we had to have a connection and talk about this, this thing. Um, And, and it's, it's, it, these events don't cause that value. They just reveal the value.
0: Mm. Okay. So what you're talking about in this book is Mm -hmm. that this, these traumatic experiences help us give a mirror to what we already deeply care about but maybe don't realize that these are our deepest values because we get busy and distracted in our everyday lives. Is that right?
1: Exactly. Yes. Okay.
0: Let's make the connection then to why that has worldview implications. Well,
1: I would say this, uh, then the question is if people matter most, where do people fit in our worldview? Hmm. And, and I, I, draw the contrast between the Christian story and a kind of a general atheist story. And of course there are lots of different versions of atheist stories. Um, But on atheist stories, at least almost all of them, uh, personhood is completely accidental. It's not that persons don't matter, but the fact that we exist is completely accidental and we're very late in the history of the universe. Um, the universe doesn't care that persons exist.
0: So you're, you're saying, just for clarity, you're not saying that atheists don't care about persons. You're saying the atheist worldview in which there is no God, yeah. humans and persons have bubbled up through this purposeless, blind process. They're late in the game and yes. don't seem to have the value that we attribute to them in things like tragedies when we know humans deeply value is that fair? Yeah, I think
1: so. I mean, I would, I would never say that there's no room for care for people in an atheist worldview because right. I believe there's plenty of room for that. But the story itself, people are not at the center, whereas in, in Christianity, the most fundamental reality is personal. Mm. So per, human beings are persons because God is a person. And so the starting point of the entire story is, is a person who knows things, acts for reasons, loves, and and then creates us into a uh, relationship. So it's not a comparison of uh, who gets to care the most. Gotcha. It's the fact that we all care equally um, fits better on a Christian story. On the atheistic story, it's why are people that important? Um
0: Okay, so in the, in the atheist story, in a sense, there's matter and then mind, which characterize persons that come out of it. In mm-hmm. Christianity, fundamentally, you have mind, yes. which is a personal being who creates matter after that. So relationship, in particular, God being a trinity, and we're talking about that, is at the heart of the Christian faith that makes sense of our yearning for persons and relationship.
1: Yes, and, and notice that because in the Christian story, human beings um, are not accidental. We were made by God, but that's not enough. We were made for reasons. He made us for reasons, and those reasons give us purpose in our, our life. They have to do with what our life is about. God made us to reflect his image, and there are many different ways that happens, but um, he, it, it gives us meaning because we're not just accidental. We are in the mind of God. Um, and so gotcha. it matters to God. Yeah,
0: Gotcha. For those of you just joining us, and I'm going to go to the question from G. Fujigo. I apologize. I feel like I butchered that okay. in just a minute. We're talking about Greg Gansel's book, Our Deepest Desires. And he's arguing that humans have deep desires for relationships, a deep value for humans, for goodness, for beauty. And these are signposts that point to the divine. Now, let me go mm-hmm. to this question and come back and ask you a follow-up on the point we were on. He says, so what about our leisure activities, video games, sports, etc.? How do they ultimately point to God?
1: Oh, okay. That's a good question. <laughs> um, I, I think our leisure activities are a reflection of the extravagant generosity of God. Right? I, think, I think all throughout creation we see extravagant generosity. There's no stinginess. That's why there are billions of galaxies and thousands of different kinds of frogs. Um, <laughs> and, 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 they're, and they're beautiful, right? And, yes. and so God just loves to lavish um, generosity and, and kind of quirky beauty everywhere and I think I think a lot of our our leisure can be a participation in the celebration of of um kind of this it it, it's like a divine gift of um a long weekend right yeah Uh, maybe I could say it like it, it, it can be tempting to denigrate leisure activities because there are more important things to do. Sure. But I don't, I, I think, and there are important things, but I, but I think God is a God of generosity and not everything is um, instrumental. God is not a taskmaster trying to get you to do more and more and more and more. He wants us to to celebrate and rejoice in just the great generosity of God. And um, I think video games can be part of that. Now, I'm not very good at video games, but <laughs> that's some people a separate are.
0: issue. So, in other words, yeah. God has given us pleasures, and those pleasures yeah. are good if used in the right way. I think of The Matrix when Neo wakes up and he eats like oatmeal, and I'm like, it could be this bare, drab existence. but God has given us strawberries. He's given us roses and he's given us beautiful frogs like you described. That's God's extravagance. I love that. That is a that is a fantastic response. Now we were talking about why people matter most. And Mm -hmm. this doesn't fit in the atheistic worldview. But what about the pantheistic worldview? Could kind of that new age tradition make sense of the value of persons on a worldview level?
1: Yeah, um, let me let me just jump in with a bracket comment. It's not that on the atheist view people don't matter. It's that it's that it doesn't fit as well with the gotcha. worldview that that people matter doesn't fit as well. Well said. I think on the, on the pantheist worldview um, we're going to have some of the same challenges because many forms of pantheism, um, maybe not all, have as a kind of. Um, um, goal, the overcoming of our individuality, hmm. right? Because the fact that we are distinct persons is part of the problem on some of these views and that needs to be overcome. Well, that puts a very low value on individual personhood. Um, and, and so I, I think the, the, the Christian story where individual people um, can live with God forever and remain individuals, remain in community, but as individuals is, is, um, puts, puts personhood much more at the center.
0: That is really, really interesting, that part of the purpose is not to enter into a relationship with one another and a personal God, but to right. divest yourself and enter into the oneness ultimately and lose your person. I think you could also argue on New Age, at least in certain versions, distinctions are artificial between right and wrong. Persons and Mm non-persons. So it doesn't hold persons in the same value that are distinct from the rest of creation. Um, Yeah.
1: yeah. A lot of versions of Buddhism, the goal is to overcome the self.
0: Hmm.
1: Whereas in, in the Christian story, the goal is to become your best self. Right? The self that God created you to be, the spiritual formation that comes as we, as we grow through the power of the spirit into the kind of person he wants us to be.
0: So we're talking about the importance of persons and that when the chips are down, so to speak, something like 9-11, we all know that human beings and persons matter most. So the question is, what worldview is that really at home in? Now, after that, you talk about how we flourish in relationships, Mm-hmm. Connect those dots to me and then also how that connects to the Christian story.
1: Well, it, 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 is, it is really interesting because, because there's, there can be a tension in people's mind. If, if we emphasize persons, we could become what people call individualistic. Mm. And each person is their own um, kind of atom. And there's no real interaction. I mean, so it can be pushed that way. And, uh, and of course, a, a big stereotype of late modern American culture is that it's very individualistic. Sure. Uh, in in but in terms of our needs, we need both individual and community because we flourish best in relationships. If we if if your relationships are going well, your life is going well. Mm-hmm. In, in in most cases, right? Um mm-hmm. But if your relationships aren't going well, it doesn't matter what else happens. You're, you, you, you know that you're uh, struggling in, in your life. So there's, there's this combination when we investigate our needs. Well, this is exactly what we find in the Christian story in terms of the nature of God himself. God is triune, one being three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in eternal love relationship, um, independent of human beings, that in love and relationship is is primary. It's one of the most foundational um, bits of reality. So, if, as the Christian story says, God makes us in His image, it makes sense that we have these relational drives, mm. and and we see that in the in the Genesis story of creation.
0: Yeah, You know what I love about this is the more I think about it, you see this all over like movies. I mean movies are about – like take Jurassic World. It's not really about a dinosaur getting out of a cage and trying to survive. That gives it drama and interest. But in Jurassic World, it's actually about the aunt and her two nephews and the broken yes. relationship – that gives meaning to fighting the dinosaurs. That's why strangers, when they get killed in the movie, bother us less. We don't know them. There's no relationship. And obviously that's a terrible thing, but because we know them and have a relationship and we're yearning for them to be together, that actually gives the movie a kind of meaning. So I think your point would be that that movie just brings to the surface, you can't tell a great movie without those components or it's a tragedy if the relationships don't work out because right. that's our deepest desire—to value people and be in relationships with people—is right. that fair? Yeah, I
1: think so. And and you can do the contrast if you read um, Camus' novel *The Fall* or *The Stranger*. Um, you you many readers, myself included, struggle to identify with the character, and and because he's trying to talk about uh, a man in a world devoid of meaning. It, it it becomes almost impossible to identify, and and to connect, um, and and it and, and I think part of his program I could be wrong about this is is to show the bankruptcy in a world without meaning of uh, these kinds of relational things and, sure. and and even rationality and things like that.
0: Very good. Well, it's great to see Darren uh, Susan. True Cantrophobia. Nice to have you on here. If you have questions for Greg, throw them in the box. We're still going to talk about goodness and beauty pointing towards God. Uh, he's mm-hmm. one of my favorite thinkers in his book, uh, Our Deep Desires. I'm going to keep plugging it for you, my friend. Because uh, thanks, man. I, I think it's a fantastic book. I think it's really good for Christians and for seekers, one of the first ones that I recommend. Um, okay, so to catch everybody up, we've been talking about how things like tragedies like 9-11 reveal that we care deeply about people. We also realize it's not that we care about people, but we flourish in relationships with people. And this is at home in the Christian way of thinking things, because God not only is a person, he's tripersonal and has made us in his image. Yes. Let's move to a second signpost that's in the book, which is goodness. Mm-hmm. And what was eye-opening to me, Greg, is we typically do debates or discussions about is morality objective or subjective? Does it point towards God? And you added a spin in this. You said, not only do people really believe in goodness, but people want to be seen as being good. Mm-hmm. And that made me pause. And now I see it everywhere in culture. Yes. Everybody yep. on every political aisle of something wants to be seen as morally good. So talk about why that's the case and maybe what worldview insight that gives us.
1: Well, well, we, we can – I mean, you can observe this if you are a careful eavesdropper and you and you you overhear a conversation and and someone is saying, look, what you did was wrong. You never hear the other person say, oh, I don't care about morality. <laughs> There's always going to be an excuse or a story for why right. it really wasn't. wrong. OK. There's a misunderstanding. Um, and, and I think what what this helps reveal is that some that. OK, I'm going to go on a limb here. Um some of our skepticism and maybe a lot of our skepticism about moral reality, kind of an objective moral reality is actually a surface skepticism. It's not very deep. Mm. Uh, Most people deeply care about um, not just um, surviving or, or being successful, but being good in their sense of what good is and, Mm. and, you look at the political debate; it's all over it. There is no moral relativism in American political discourse right now. Nobody says, "Oh, well, that's okay because that's you know that's what's true for you." There, there is conflict.
0: I love that you say this. A blogger wrote last week says, "I forget the title."s There's no such thing as a relativist. And I said, "You look at Democrats. You look at Republicans. They're both making a case that their policies will save lives." Trump oh. says hydro. Proxy chloroquine—I can't even say it. I'm not a doctor, a medical doctor. Would have saved 100,000 lives. Biden says his position would have saved lives. Mm-hmm. The point is not whether who's right, but both care about saving lives. Yes, they think it's morally good. Yes, and I watch it.
1: Okay, oh, oh, good. Go exactly. A lot of the heated debate can be can be diffused if we recognize that many disagreements are about what are the best means to the mm-hmm. same end. Mm-hmm. Right. There's disagreement about which is the best way to save lives or to protect people's dignity or or to care for the poor and and that can help take some of the sting out of this but that's a that's another topic
0: yeah no that that's important even when I I'll watch I watch CNN I watch Fox News and both of them want to be on the side of the angels they both yeah. want to claim that they're right they want to have the moral high ground because yeah. it's so deeply written into human nature we not only want to I think your point is that we not only know that good is better than evil and we want to be good, but we want to be seen as being good. Yes. Tell me why that latter part is so significant and how, what worldview significance comes from it. Well, I I think um,
1: it is significant because it reveals the depth of our value of goodness. It, it, it's like we, it, Believing in good and evil, you know, and, and objective moral obligations, or something like this. Um, in, in some conversations, it can be fairly abstract. And um, but when we when we when when we squirm, if someone misunderstands us and think we did something wrong, it it reveals how deeply we care about this. There's something about human nature that that is morally oriented. Right. That's oriented towards a moral evaluation. Um, And and of course, in a a Christian worldview, that's part of the fingerprints of God, because we're made in his image for relationship and and morality comes out of God's purposes for us and which are for our flourishing. And um, and and it's not that you can't have certain moral goods in an atheistic worldview. I think you can have moral goods. Yep. It's harder to have moral obligations. I think, but um, but there's still a fittingness, right? Mm. Morality is a very strange thing when it comes to to atheism because it it's accidental.
0: Yeah. By the way, Justin Grace, who is in your class this semester, is saying hi. He's enjoying it. So I think. I think from Hong Kong, if I got yep. HK correct. So that is awesome you're joining us. Whatever time it is there, man, we are glad okay. to have you. That's that's a treat. Okay, so I could can, I can hear some skeptics and critics saying, yeah, Darwinism or atheism can account for this because it's been wired into us through the process of evolution to mm-hmm. have us get along. I mean, if we didn't have a sense of moral goodness and behavior – then we would self-destruct and we couldn't have trade and we couldn't live together. Doesn't this seem to also be at home in a Darwinian worldview?
1: Well, actually, there are certain aspects where I I would say, yes, the Darwinian story can explain a lot. Okay. Right. In in, in its fundamental reality, the Darwinian story can explain um, if it's all true. And I'm talking about undirected Darwinism right? An atheistic Darwinism, not if God directs a Darwinistic story, right? That's a different issue. In undirected uh, Darwinism, if, um, um, that can explain how did we become the kind of creatures that respond to one another this way, right? And, and, but, but notice that it can't, it doesn't say anything about the reality of moral truths, or moral obligations, and it has no explanation for those things. Um, but it actually might give a pretty plausible explanation. for or just like, how did we become the kind of creatures that have opposable thumbs? Well, how did we we become the kind of creatures that kind of have a drive to cooperate and protect our our tribe? Um, I, I I think I think there are some explanations there, but. That it's true that one ought to, in a moral sense, protect your tribe and treat people with dignity is much more difficult uh, on the Darwinian story.
0: So I, if I understand correctly, what you're saying is Darwin, Darwinism, if it were true, could account for feelings that we have, that we ought to be moral, we yeah. want to be seen as being good. But those are not rooted in a actual moral universe, they're just right. feelings to get us to survive and flourish and pass on our genes, that means there's no objective difference between a life of goodness, a life lacking goodness from a moral standpoint. Is that fair? From a moral standpoint.
1: Now, okay. now from a okay. functional standpoint, there still will be a difference. Yeah.
0: Good. There's a question about connecting these to God's existence. Hang on there for a second. Um, True counterphobia, you have an awesome question. Is actually next on my list. So let me read what you're asking and then I'll tailor it specifically to Greg's book. He says, could Greg talk about the idea that good is what God is and how evil should be thought of as not really a thing in itself, but a perversion or corruption of what is good? Now, with Mm -hmm. that said, the way I was going to ask the question directly related to your book is you say, Greg, you say, Christianity makes sense of our expectations concerning goodness being primary and evil being a distortion. Mm -hmm. How does Christianity make sense of that?
1: Well, it's exactly what what the question said. Hmm. Is that in in the Christian story, um, goodness and evil are not equal and opposite, Okay. right? And and even though they're, they are opposing, they're not equal and opposite because in the in the creation story, God is fully good before any evil comes into the world, and what evil is is a distortion of some good thing, um, and and that distortion, you know, I like I like C.S. Lewis's use of the word in in his ransom trilogy when he talks about it being bent it's mm-hmm. a bent world and um, um, some some of the implications for this is nothing can be purely evil right because everything that is has god's fingerprint still on it and evil cannot completely annihilate the goodness that's in something i think i think this is the right picture and it, it actually connects with our expectations um, in, in this way. And I tell the story in, in the book. You get into your car 40 times a week and you expect it to start. You never think about it. But when it doesn't start, you notice. Huh. You notice when, when something doesn't work and, and because it's not functioning the way it ought to function. And one of our colleagues here, has uh, characterized evil as um, when things aren't the way they're supposed to be, right? So there's a way way they're supposed to be, and then there's a way they're not. And this is our intuitive sense, right? I'm a really bad basketball player because I can't accomplish those goals, you know, according to the rules. Or even if I cheat, I can't accomplish those goals, right? But a good basketball player accomplishes, does what he's supposed to do or she's supposed to do according to the rules. And, and so this is part of our – even our concept of goodness and evil. And yet it maps onto this picture that, that, that the uh, question um, so articul- articulately put forward that, that God is the foundational goodness. And, and something is evil if it's twisted away from God's purpose in some way. Yep. Excellent.
0: Th- this is a really helpful way to look at it. Our colleague J.P. Moreland says evil is when things are the way they're not supposed to be yeah. or they're not the way they are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Evil is when something gets corrupted or broken. Yeah. And so you even think about things like truth and a lie. A truth You can have truth without a lie, but mm-hmm. a lie is a corruption or a twisting of the yeah. way things are not supposed to be, which is telling the truth. Right. So again, just to point out to our viewers, you're taking this intuition we have of how we all across cultures across time use good and evil and say mm-hmm. it actually makes sense of the Christian worldview, in which God is primary. And there's a corruption because of free will, according mm-hmm. to God's design.
1: Yes. Now exactly.
0: I have a question about Nietzsche and how he said traditional morality undermines flourishing. But make a connection for us. The question came up here, and the question was, what's the connection between these desires and the existence of God? So we saw that in relationship. But how does that exist in goodness? And again, I know you're not arguing that this proves God exists, Mm -hmm. but that Mm -hmm. it's at home and kind of points towards a Christian worldview. Connect those dots for us.
1: Okay, and so what I'm really trying to do in the book is is not persuade someone that Christian worldview is true first. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to help people see that they really want it to be true mm. um, and, and that their desires actually are at home in the Christian worldview. So everything I care most about, if I begin to see that everything I care most about fits better in the Christian story than in any of the other stories – then I'm going to look at the Christian story with, with a great deal of openness and maybe even eagerness to, mm. to find its truth because, because um, these are the things I care most about. These aren't trivial concerns. So that's really the tenor of the book. And and so the connection I'm trying to make wait, is let, that – let me jump.
0: Can I jump in before you make that yeah. connection? I know right away people are going to go, OK, wait a minute. So you want Christianity to be true. Right. You're just setting yourself up to find what you're looking for because mm-hmm. of your desires. I know you've obviously thought about that. Tell me your thoughts on that, then let's come back to the connection. Okay. Well, I, I think
1: uh, the contrast is people today think, I'm pretty sure Christianity is false, and it's really good that it's false. Okay. And this goes back to your very first question, where people think that um, Christianity doesn't connect with our desires because it's about being narrow minded. And things like this. And and that um, influences people to think it must be false. And okay, and okay. I, I'm just trying to turn that coin over. I, I, I'm not trying to argue that because we want it to be true, it is true. I think that that people in general, or I should say many people, are so far away from considering Christianity that before they can take very many steps we have to help them see that it's good. It's a Christianity actually is a good thing. And that's what I'm trying to persuade them to. Um, and then from there, if someone's convinced it's a good thing, then then um, that person can be much less defensive or okay. resistant to evaluating other kinds of evidence or whatever. Um it's it's kind of trying to level the playing ground okay. a little
0: bit. I think I so I think this makes more sense. Let me clarify it for viewers. This is not a self-fulfilling prophecy where you're saying, hey, you want this to be true, therefore bend the evidence to fit something you want to be true. You're saying if we step back and just reflect upon deep seated commitments of things we value and see in the world, you're gonna find that they naturally fit within the Christian worldview. And when you see that, you're going to realize that Christianity fits this deeper yearning of your heart naturally. It's not putting a square peg in a round hole. It's removing some of these false ideas of Christianity. Then somebody would be open to following the evidence if it were true. Exactly. Is that fair? Exactly. Okay.
1: That's exactly um, what I'm hoping for. And saying, there, there, wouldn't it be strange if the things I cared most about on the deepest level – don't fit in my picture of reality.
0: Hmm.
1: I mean, that, that, you know, that's an existential kind of moment to realize this, not just a theoretical, um, that ought to prod me to rethink something. It's like everything I care about is, is not at home. Okay. It's alien. It's, it's intention in varying degrees. Right. Um, but, that's kind of the prod
0: yes. that makes perfect sense by the way, choi tinkle, that is awesome that your niece is coming to Biola soon would love to have her in my class dr. Ganzel's yep. class that would be sure. fantastic so let's uh did we sufficiently make the connection from the point to God did we cover that in- i think I think pretty much okay. again
1: it's it's very hard for people to. Um, hear this discussion and not think we're trying to get all the way to the Christian stories true. Okay. I'm just trying to get people to see it in a different light. Gotcha. And, and then that can open doors for them. Okay. So, so let's, they us read your books for the <laughs> to so that's true.
0: We can do a follow up on that one. Okay. Let's talk about one that I found is the hardest for people to grasp. Mm-hmm. Yet when I grasped it, it was like, this is unbelievable. And it's the idea of beauty. Mm-hmm. Now, you say that we don't look for beauty, but beauty captures us. Tell us what you mean by that.
1: Okay, okay. I, I I'm I'm I was trying to elucidate this experience that sometimes we have, where where we're startled by something's beauty, right? So so if you're walking through an art gallery, um, and you see picture after picture, after a while you're kind of maybe skimming. But then something you see something and you and you stop, and and beauty can make us stop, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I mean by kind of grabbing us, um, uh, uh, arresting us in, in a, a sort of way. There are, there are various things that um, like if you go to the Grand Canyon, sure, you and you see many people doing this simply staring because it's it's it it's stunning. The beauty. We were in. Uh, we were our. Our daughter was working in in Calcutta for a, for a year with IJM, and we went to visit a couple of, falls ago, and went to the Taj Mahal. Had the same experience. Wow. The the the, beauty, w- was, overwhelming, and you just wanted to stare at it. Um, so that's the kind of experience i'm trying to point to with that language
0: and that's a universal deep intuition that we have yes. and it's funny how many memes i see of people i saw this boat and this beautiful uh, whale was coming out of the water and someone oh, was my- sitting there on their phone and yeah. missed it and it was this huge meme and the idea was the moment you look at that everybody knows that's a disaster because yes. they were distracted by something secondary and missed the beauty in front of them yes it's yes. like we don't have to explain this to people. When they see it, they get it, right?
1: Exactly. And and the other thing we do is we scramble for our phones to take a picture of it, mm-hmm. and the picture will never be good as the experience, <laughs> and we miss the experience. Right? Mm-hmm.
0: It's exactly right. And that's a tragedy. Okay, so what would a case for objective beauty look like? And I ask because... I think most people, deep down inside, are not really relativists, like we talked about in morality. I think when I talk with most people, I can move them in the direction of believing morality is objective. But it is really hard to convince even Christians that yeah. a rose is beautiful is a claim about the rose, the object itself. Yes. What yeah. would a case like that even look like?
1: Well, I think I think it's very very difficult because you we have mm-hmm. to appeal to certain kinds of experiences. And, um, one of the the ways I go after this is I think if, if, if I am contemplating a rose and I say, that's not beautiful, there's something wrong with me. (laughs) So, so it helps me to ask the question, is this my problem or is this the roses problem? And, and no, it's something wrong with me. And, and sometimes there's some, there can be something wrong with us that has nothing to do with failure. Right. It's just, I, I might not have, well, with the rose, that's a, that's not as common, but, um, if you go through an art museum with a, um, with, with an art historian, she will help you see things you didn't see before. And she will increase your capacity actually to see the painting. Mm. And then the beauty becomes, um, more, um, gripping more, more obvious. But to be honest, on my own, my, my capacity to see certain kinds of beauty is, is pretty underdeveloped. Mm. So I I think the thing that helps me in my experience is to say, is it, is it my problem or is it the roses problem? Right. And, and I think, no, it's the, there's something wrong with me. If I, if I don't see that as beautiful now on a superficial level, um, there are preferences that are pretty relative, Okay. And, 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 and that's okay, but when we peel back and get to cases where, where we're tempted to say there's something more going on here, I think there is objective beauty.
0: Now, you're speaking fighting words because you're actually saying if somebody holds a rose or looks at a sunset or hears classical music and says, yeah, that just doesn't move me, I think it's ugly, you're saying, no, no, actually the problem is not with the sunset or the rose. The problem yeah. is with you, somehow you lack the capacity or the acquired taste to recognize the beauty that is right in front of you.
1: Yeah. Right? I think that's in general true. I mean, okay. I want to be very generous in terms of our capacities. There's okay. certain kinds of music that I, I don't respond to. Gotcha. And yeah. and um, and I don't see the beauty. Um, and so I have strong preferences um but but if someone could walk me through it and help me see it then i think then i would begin to say you know even in these things that i might not prefer i i can see um certain um real beauty there okay
0: what about somebody who says look couldn't we say the same about cooking like some people really know how to cook and if you don't appreciate a certain taste, maybe the problem is you've just been eating McDonald's and you haven't learned to develop a taste of really good food. What would be the difference between, say, objective beauty in a rose and taste? Because it seems like taste would fit the kind of description you've given so far.
1: Well, boy, that's a good question. I'm not sure there's going to be a difference. I think I think mm-hmm. a palate... I mean, from what I know, which is almost nothing, um, a palate is something that um, has to be cultivated, right? A capacity to taste is something that can be cultivated, and certain things um, won't be able to be appreciated without a cultivation, Mm -hmm. right? And I think we can we can um, decultivate our palate by by eating. McDonald's or whatever whatever it is. We don't want to um, speak ill of you know, McDonald's necessarily. <laughs> but, um, but you know we, we, we can train ourselves not to have the discriminating palate. Now okay. somewhere in here there's still room for preferences. okay and, and I, I'm not entirely clear how it's going to fit together all the way through. That's fair. But,
0: well, I give a talk where I talk about ice cream being a subjective flavor and Mm -hmm. insulin being a medicine that actually helps with diabetes. One is in the object insulin, and Mm -hmm. one is in the the flavor ice cream. And I say to people, I say, if I held a big scoop of ice cream here, and I said, this is delicious, is that really about the ice cream, or is that about my experience of it? And the answer is that's about my experience of it, right? It's about Mm -hmm. my preferences, but not really the object itself, although my experience is based on certain capacities Within the object. But if I say this weighs a certain pound, now that has nothing to do with my preferences. That's about the ice cream itself. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: what you're saying with beauty is you're saying it's actually a feature like weight, although not physical, Mm -hmm. of objects themselves. So the rose contains the property. It has redness and it's beautiful. A waterfall is beautiful. I'm trying Mm -hmm. to make sure that I'm capturing your argument here because people miss the difference between objective and subjective. And you're saying, no, it's in the object itself. And if if that's correct, it sounds like you're green. What I ask people is I'll say, I'll say, look, how do we use terms like beauty? Like Mm -hmm. when I say to my wife, you're beautiful. Yes, there's a preference. But I'm Mm -hmm. saying there's this is something true of you. Right. She's five, six, hundred and whatever pounds. And yep. she's beautiful. We look at a waterfall. Lewis's argument was when we say it's beautiful, I'm not talking about my feelings. Right. I'm right. actually talking about the waterfall. Now that may be false, but don't we use it and talk about it in a way as if it's a part of the object I yes. think is the appeal that we're getting at here, right? That's at least our intuitions of how we use it.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's very, very well said. When we use mm-hmm. these words, we we use them as if we're talking about the object. Um, and, and there's going to be some borderline cases and maybe delicious is one of them, Okay. right? Um, but if you had two different kinds of scoops of ice cream and you had kind of a very cheap ice cream and then, you know, a real... Um, homemade, creamy ice cream, um, there would be an objective difference between them, I think.
0: That is really interesting because when I think about my kids, I'm like, you guys just literally want to go to McDonald's. So the point is not to back on McDonald's again yeah. because they haven't developed a taste for yes. further food. So very interesting. We won't, we won't hammer on that anymore, but make, make the connection from that. To mm-hmm. the Christian worldview, why is beauty at home in the Christian worldview, or our yearning for beauty, yeah. in a way, it's not in other worldviews?
1: Well, a couple of ways. It's because God is a master artist, right? And 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 this this the world didn't have to be beautiful, and God made it beautiful. It's part of uh, the extravagant generosity we were talking about that that God made a variety of these tastes and and colors. Um, and, and sounds, and, and when I say that God is a master artist, I mean, I mean the word master in two ways, right? God okay. is like the highest artist, but God also is a, 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 a creator of artists, and our artistic drive is part mm-hmm. of being made in the image of God. Our drive for creativity is a function of the purposes for which he created us. Now, some of us are much more talented in particular arts than others, but, but we all have kind of a drive to make things and, and have them be good. Have them either function or look or sound or taste good. Um, and it, and it's related to this book, Edith Schaefer wrote, called Hidden Art. Yeah. And she's talking about um, thinking artistically about all of the tasks in our life. Um, I, and, I, and I think that fits with the Christian story. Because – and it has to do with the part in the in the Genesis story where God says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God is delegating to human beings, in a sense, the finishing of the creation. Hmm. Now we don't create things out of nothing the way God does, but we continue to form things and to cultivate. And that includes both what we call art today and all kinds of craft and all kinds of work and scholarship. Um, All of these things fit into that.
0: You know, classically, what philosophers would talk about is the good, the true, and the beautiful. Right. And we'd say those are grounded in God's character. God is good. He's holy. He's righteous. He's pure. Mm -hmm. God is true. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. And God is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Beauty is a part of God's character. We see that reflected, like you said, in his artistry of creation, which, of course, has been marred by sin. But the Mm -hmm. garden was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Look at the temple was beautiful, how ornate it was. Look at the new heavens revelation. You get to the end of Revelation 21 and chapter 22, this beauty of heaven. Mm -hmm. God doesn't have to do that. But it's an extension of who he is. And part of the lure of the Christian story is that we want this beauty. We feel at home there, and we yearn for it. Absolutely. So one of the things that always got me is, like, how, what would a Darwinian explanation for beauty be? And I could guess, and I could come up with one. You'd have to have some way that beauty fosters survival. Uh, right. Why does that ultimately fall short in your estimation?
1: Well, well, yeah, it would be a, a beauty uh, – fostering or contributing to survival. So you can think of bees gravitating towards certain colors to pollinate and this kind of thing. Um, and, um, I, I, I think it can, again, it can explain why human beings are the kinds of creatures that are attracted to certain kinds of things. But it, but if, if we begin to think that there is an objectivity to beauty, um, and, and an objectivity that goes beyond the functional, then um, then it, there's going to be a tiny bit of tension between the, the Darwinian story and, and, and the Christian story. Um,
0: so, so ultimately, the Darwinian story is going to have to explain all beauty in terms yes. of function. But the problem is, as I see it, we find things that are beautiful mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. depths of the ocean, right. in the depths of the solar mm-hmm. system that feels so extravagant again, in the way you were describing things that are earlier, Mm -hmm. that seem to be a hint about the kind of universe that's there and how we have been made to discover and experience reality. It just feels so extravagant when -hmm. it comes to beauty to me. Why do you think it's so hard for people, at least moderns, to -hmm. recognize that beauty is objective? And I ask because I've made a couple of Twitter videos, Instagram posts, I've made a couple of TikTok videos and either people, when I argue for objective beauty, either it is just like, what are you talking about? I don't understand or just ridicule me. People mm-hmm. don't even take it seriously. Right. What do you think is at the heart of that?
1: Well, um, I, I I think beauty, objective beauty is one of the harder concepts, hmm. right? And, and, you know, there's been a 300 plus – slide that everything that sounds like a value is subjective you know going coming out of early modern philosophy and and all of this and um you know morals are more stubborn than beauty because there's in a sense more immediate at stake so people are less even though people want to be moral relative as at least they claim to there there is um they, there's a lot more at stake to make people hesitate to embrace re- relativism about morality, mm-hmm. whereas there doesn't seem to be much at stake with beauty. So this might ex- be kind of an explanation yeah. for, for some of this. Um, and and I think people gravitate towards superficial preference categories, um, and and we can admit that there's there's a in a sense a fuzzy boundary. Between preference and objective beauty, but if we go to some of these cases, we see no. They, they, it seems like if I if I don't see this right, I am failing to see what's there, and 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 I think that's um, that's kind of where we have to go to help elucidate this concept.
0: I think you hit on I, something really important. Just because we might look at a certain country song and go, "Is that really beautiful or not?" doesn't mean a song by Beethoven or Bach is not beautiful. Because there's some cases we're not sure and can't recognize or differ over what is beauty, beautiful doesn't mean there's not clear cut cases like a glacier or a waterfall or a sunset or a solar system. Those are clearly beautiful. And those raise the question about the kind of universe that we live in. I think that's Absolutely. That's great. Let me ask we're getting a little bit towards the end, but let me ask you this. Would you say, this is a great question from uh, my friend, True Counterphobia. We interact on Twitter and other places too. He says, can we say that the story of the gospel is beautiful?
1: I think so. Yeah. I was talking to someone else about this and he said, what about the beauty in the cross? And and it took me a minute and I said, then I thought, yes, the cross is beautiful because it is the, the in a sense, the, the clearest expression of the deep love of God for us. Mm. The cross is also ugly because it's the clearest expression of the rebellion against God. right? So you get in the same event, um, in the atonement, you get, you get the heights of beauty and you get the depths of ugliness. As well as the heights of goodness and the depths of of, of evil, um, but it is it is the gospel story is beautiful. One one more point about this: a friend of mine made the observation that every story is a redemption story. Hmm. And and you look at movies, you look at you know, there's always someone who's redeemed or converted, and that shows that the the terrain of the gospel story, the arc. Is a beautiful arc, hmm. and you think of Little Mermaid, you think of you know the Disney stories, you think of the Marvel movies. There, now you're preaching. Yeah, there's some kind of redemption or some kind of overcoming for something good, often involving sacrifice, and and this resonates with with us because we're made in the image of God, and God is the one who overcomes through sacrifice
0: that's beautiful it's, i i think i'm i would argue that grace is the most beautiful or one of the most beautiful things in the universe yeah. when properly understood because it's such an indicator of the goodness and love and sacrifice of god's character yeah. and i think that's what john seventeen five talks about that god makes himself known through the cross his glory yeah. so that's a wonderful question we did have a question here from uh Woodoo he says, I really need to know, how do I know I exist? And I guess my next question would be, um, whom may I say is acquiring? And if you can let me know who's asking the question, I will give you evidence if you exist or not. And hopefully you caught the irony on that statement. Yeah. Um, Greg, last one for you, and then I got to let you go. Is And this is only a quick point. Again, we've been talking about your book, uh, Our Deepest Desires, that I really hope my viewers will pick up a copy with. Uh, if you have someone who's not a believer, this is a great book that doesn't argue Christianity's true, doesn't get into the reliability of the Bible, It's just one step forward saying you should consider how your heart maybe longs for Christianity to be true. And then they'd be open to considering if it's true. Now, the last one you talk, and you are have to kind of give me your Twitter answer is freedom. And people are going to have to pick up the last chapter of the book and read it. But what do you mean by freedom? And how is that kind of at home in the Christian worldview?
1: Well, well you, you made the point earlier that, that traditionally goodness, truth, and beauty were, were the, what they call the transcendentals. The, yep. And so I thought about writing on truth, but I thought people um, don't like truth. At least they claim not to. It, it, it immediately gets people into debate mode. So I use freedom instead, and, and I mean personal freedom and, and, and governing that into being the kind of people we want to be. I, I'm most free when I'm the kind of person I want to be, the kind of person I should be. Hmm. So I connect freedom to truth in, in the sense that you've got to have um, a good diagnostic of your situation in order to be free. And, and I talk about Jesus saying, look, the one whose sins is a slave and the one but the truth will set you free. Gotcha. And, gotcha. and then I, I bring in um, the hope of the Christian story. And how that gives us freedom now because our story's never over. So that, that's kind of the, the snapshot. Um,
0: that picture. connection between freedom and truth is fantastic. Oftentimes when I work with students, so I'll say, who's more free? Someone who can sit down at a piano and bang the keys however they want to. Or someone who's disciplined themselves, understands the nature and purpose of the piano, and plays it according to its design.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: the answer is obvious. Yes. According to its design, based on certain discipline, is what brings freedom. And if there's yeah. a God who made us, then mm-hmm. we can only be free when we discipline our lives to resist our desires, our urges, yeah. so to speak, and yes. live the way God wants us to live. And I think you bring that out beautifully, and I mm. say that intentionally Uh, in this book so greg i love your book i really hope our viewers um will pick up our deepest desires if you're christian you want to go a little bit deeper and connect these dots it's very similar to a lot of the way that c.s lewis would write a lot of those aha moments it's a thin book but i've gone through it multiple times highlighted thought about it thoroughly enjoyed uh interviewing you it's a thrill to be a colleague of you at biola you're doing great work there
1: well, you too. Um, Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, if you guys are enjoying this, give us a thumbs up, please, and consider sharing it uh, with a friend. If you know a non-believer who might be open to hearing this, or a Christian who needs to be encouraged. Mm-hmm. Uh, last thing I'll say, very quickly, is uh, we make sure you sign up and hit the subscribe button because we have some other interviewees, interviews coming, even with people like Craig Evans, one of the leading historical Jesus scholars in the world. He's great. We have Richard Bachum who's coming on actually next week, one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world to talk about Jesus and the eyewitnesses. William Dembski, we've got some heavy hitters in the sense of people who've thought about this a lot and are going to bring some great substance. If you love this content, this channel is produced in partnership with Biola, and we would love to have you come and study apologetics with us. If you've ever thought about getting an MA in apologetics, we would mm-hmm. love to partner with you. We have people from 25 to 75 years old, every walk of life. You can power through the program and just do one at a time. But we love to come, kind of beside you and help equip you to be a resource to your church, your, to your community, to your mm-hmm. family, and your ministry. And there's information below in the description. So, thanks to all of you for joining us, Greg. You are a rock star. Thoroughly enjoyed yeah. this interview. It was so much fun. Hang on, don't disappear. All right, we thanks, will- John. We will see the rest of you back here soon in our next interview. Thanks so much. Good to see you all.